Welcome to the Weekend Universities podcast. If you are hearing this, you are not currently subscribed to our premium membership and therefore only getting a partial version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the full version and access our master library of over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors and authors, along with CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes and unlimited access to recordings from our annual online conference, please go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash membership for more information. Janina, welcome to the summit. Um, to get started, could you, could you maybe tell us about your motivation to become a clinical psychologist? You know, what, what initially sparked that in you? Well, actually, my children sparked, were the initial spark, because I remember being a 24-year-old, 25-year-old young mother with a university education and realizing I've got this university educations. There's so much I know about, and I am completely incompetent at taking care of a little baby. And then I had a very healthy thought, which, which I'm impressed by all many years later. Um, I thought, I can't be the only mother in this position. There must be other mothers who also are prepared for all kinds of things, but they're not prepared for raising a child. So I decided, okay, I'm going to become a psychologist and I'm going to help parents with this very huge and overwhelming project of raising a child. Well, there you go. It took not- many years. It took me many years from that point because I wanted to. I wanted to wait until my children were a little older. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I was not expecting that answer, but there you go. <laughs> and then and then probably, goodness, I it's this this is there's been a lot of years here. Uh, and then probably 15 years later, I made the decision to become a specialist in trauma. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, something I noticed from just our communications, Janina, was um, in your email signature, you have a quote from uh, Vaclav Havel. I'm just, I'm just going to read it out here, and I'd like you to tell me what this quote means to you. So, hope is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. Could you maybe tell us about this quote and why you, why this quote means means something to you? Well, as you know, many survivors of trauma have lost all hope. They come to us and they say, I have no hope. How can I go on without hope? How can I work on myself if I have no hope? What if I don't believe in myself? And I always say, I I mean, I used to say, well, you won't have any hope at the beginning. You'll have hope when you see things start to turn around. And uh, and then I found the Howell quote, and I realized that was even better than, than saying you don't have hope at the beginning. You have hope when you get somewhere, which is also true. But I realized that Havel was 
brilliant. He was absolutely right. Hope is the conviction that something good will come out of our most difficult struggles. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And very, very important. Because when people are struggling, and they're often struggling for years and years and years, it's so important that that they believe that there's meaning to that struggle. Definitely, definitely. Um, it just to have that as a basic orientation and a, as, a, as an approach to life, I just think that's so, so important, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So could you maybe tell us about your experiences working um, at Bessel van der Kolk's clinic in the 1990s? I'd be curious to hear about how that, what that was like, because that was a very pioneering time in the field. It was. I was, I was very, very lucky to go to his clinic in 1995 as a supervisor and instructor. Um, but at his clinic, the supervisors sat on the clinical team. So we were a part of all the latest research advances, how they were going to be applied to the clients who, who came to his center for health. Um, it was very, very, it was exciting. It was also a period where we realized that our old tools weren't going to work, mm. right? Because he is starting in 1994, he wrote his very um, significant paper called The Body Keeps the Score. In 1994, everybody thought he was crazy as a loon. <laughs> How could anybody think that the body has anything to do with mental illness? <laughs> and uh, and he stuck to his guns and on his clinical team, um, he would keep saying to us about various cases, he would say, you must go to the body. And, but nobody knew how. So it was, it was very inspiring, but it also meant how do we do this thing of going to the body? How do we work with the body when we're trained as talking therapists? So it was exciting. We were, you know, we were kind of discovering how to work with people in different ways because just talking about what had happened or just talking about the day-to-day -day struggles, um, we're not, you know, the talking cure was not working for trauma. That makes a lot of sense. And I know you also, you've also worked with Pat Odin. Could you maybe tell us about your experience working with Pat? And was that before or after your time with Bessel? That was before, I mean, that was after and during. So in, in the 19, mid 1990s, Bessel started to do the brain scan research that proved that trauma is remembered more as feelings and body sensations than in a narrative. And he kept saying, go to the body, go to the body. But since none of us knew how to go to the body, he was forced to find people who did know how to work with the body. And he found Pat Ogden. 
And I was very inspired by the videotapes of her work. So I took her training and became a sensory motor psychotherapist um, so that I could work. I didn't stop being a psychodynamic therapist because sensory motor psychotherapy can be woven in with any method that any therapist practices. So it can be woven into EMDR, it can be woven into um, talking therapies of all kinds, into CBT, into whatever method the practitioner prefers. 100%. Um, so I'd be curious to ask now, what would you say you've got a you've got quite a unique approach to trauma and you have i suppose you've integrated many different models in there you know you've got things like internal family systems by, by richard schwartz and there's sensory motorcycle psychotherapy elements in there as well so what would you say the foundational elements that your your approach to trauma work is built upon um janina well certainly it's built upon my my traditional psychodynamic psychotherapy training that was my original training way, way back. Um, and then, then the other important influences um, included, I did a postdoctoral fellowship with Judith Herman for two years. Um, Judith Herman really, really brought an important piece, which is making psychoeducation a therapeutic approach. Because the idea, in the psychodynamic world, the idea that you educate your clients is just anathema. But Judy Herman said, no, no, no. These are people who've been victimized. They've experienced power over. When you're in a therapeutic relationship, the therapist has power over, unless the therapist educates the client, so they both know the same things. So that's been a very important influence on my work and, and really the reason um, that I wrote the book, Transforming the Living Legacy of Trauma. Um, I learned so much from Bessel, of course, um, and I learned a lot from his research. That's that, that I think people underestimate how much we as therapists can be influenced by research. But he did a study um, that was meant to investigate whether it was true that if people could talk about their traumatic experience, they would be healed from it. Because that's what we believed in the 90s. Just get them to talk about it and they'll be healed. So he did a study comparing two groups of clients who'd experienced the same kind of trauma. One group had been able to put the experience into words. The other group had not. Both groups were equally symptomatic, equally struggling, equally suffering. It may, and so that changed the way we did therapy because obviously 
the goal of having someone tell their story was not going to bring anyone the resolution or the relief they were looking for. 100%. That's so interesting. Um, from your point of view, it must just, you've sort of had the bird's eye view of how this this field has evolved over the years. You know, it's gone from mostly being approached by talking therapies to, to where it is today. Could you just give us a kind of an, an overview of, of your your experience of how you've seen it evolve? Because obviously trauma treatment has become, came to the forefront and we're starting to realize even as a society how important this is. So I'd just be curious to get your, your thoughts on that, you know? And, and, you know, because trauma is so difficult to treat, the trauma treatment field has always been the sort of the field that was innovating new treatments. And, and then the rest of the field took hold. So think mindfulness. That idea of working with mindfulness came from the trauma world. Now it's everywhere. Um, EMDR is everywhere now. Um, internal family systems is everywhere now. <laughs> and, and so it's it's been it's been very exciting. It's it was it's been like having a front row street front row seat to the exploration of some distant planet we didn't know about. Uh, it's been wonderful. Fantastic. Um, so I've heard you describe trauma as an adaptation. And a phrase I find really interesting is that, you know, we should be thinking of traumatic experiences almost as a, as a red badge of honor. Is that, is that right? And why do you think about trauma in this, in this way? Not the experiences, but the symptoms. The symptoms. So what I believe is that the symptoms tell the story better than what we remember. Because the symptoms tell us what we took from those experiences, what the effects of those experiences are. And so, you know, so I, I try to help people understand how their depression helped them survive and adapt, how their anxiety helped them survive and adapt, how their um, loss of interest or emotion help them to survive so that they can appreciate that, that that's part of the story. Learning to survive by giving up hope is brilliant, right? Right? Because that saves so much energy rather than waking up each day hopeful and then having it squashed like a bug. So there are these adaptations and it changes people's relationship to their hopelessness when they start to understand it as an ingenious strategy for surviving. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to our master library of over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, as well as transcripts, CPD certification, quizzes, and unlimited access to the recordings from our annual conferences. For more information, please go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash membership.